It doesn't take long in this life to realize that broken promises are a part of life. I can remember when I was nine or ten years old that I had a couple of close friends who decided that they didn't want to be my friend anymore. And I experienced the pain of broken promises of friendship. I can also remember when I was just about to enter my teenage years, my mom and dad sitting down with me and conveying to my sister and me that they were going to be getting divorced. And I felt the pain of broken marriage promises. And the longer you live this life, this side of heaven, the more you realize that our world is filled with broken promises. Have you ever noticed watching TV or movies that if you watch, you don't have to watch very much to hear this phrase, but there's a phrase used often in TV and movies. And the phrase is, I promise. Have you noticed how many times that's said in TVs, TV shows and movies? And it's usually something like this. I promise you're not going to die. I promise we're going to make it. I promise we'll be together. There's, there's this repeated phrase, I promise. And the crazy thing about TVs and movies is that most of the time, the promises that are made, though absolutely impossible to keep, they actually keep them. And I think that's telling when you consider the fact that we do live in a world where promises are regularly broken. I tell you that because I think every single one of us longs for some promises that are kept never to be broken, no matter what. And so we're going to read a story in Joshua chapter 11. In Joshua chapter 11, we have the story that concludes the second major section of the book of Joshua. This is the section of the conquering or taking of the land. Now this story we're going to read in chapter 11 also is the conclusion of a story within a story. So within the overarching story of taking the land, there is this story about Gibeon. In chapter 9, Gibeon experiences this mercy of God through the craziest of circumstances where they're not going to be judged like the rest of the inhabitants of the land. Chapter 10, the southern kingdoms decide to take on Israel and Joshua by first going and attacking Gibeon. Israel takes care of the southern kingdoms, providing protection and deliverance for Gibeon. And at the conclusion of the southern kingdoms being taken, the northern kingdoms of the, of the promised land are now coming against Israel. And that's where we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 11. When King Jabin of Hazor heard this news, he sent a message to King Jobab of Maiden, the kings of Shimron and Ashaph, the kings of the north in the hill country, the Arabah south of Chinnereth, the Judean foothills, 
and the slopes of Dor to the west, the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hethites, the Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah. They went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots. All these kings joined forces. They came and they camped together at the waters of Merom to attack Israel. You remember back in chapter 10, the five kings of the south, they create a strategy to go against Israel by first attacking Gibeon. And they discovered that there is no strategy that can prevail against the Lord. And now the northern kingdoms come together in this great army beyond number. A strategy won't prevail. What about big numbers? Scene 2, verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow I will cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters of Merom and attacked them. The Lord handed them over to Israel, and they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Misrephoth, Maine, and to the east as far as the valley of Mizpah. They struck them down, leaving no survivors. Joshua treated them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back, captured Hazor, and struck down its king with the sword because Hazor had formerly been the leader of all these kingdoms. They struck down everyone in it with the sword, completely destroying them. He left no one alive. Then he burned Hazor. Joshua captured all these kings and their cities and struck them down with the sword. He completely destroyed them as Moses the Lord's servant had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any of the cities that stood on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites plundered all the spoils and the cattle of these cities for themselves. But they struck down every person with the sword until they had annihilated them, leaving no one alive. Just as the Lord commanded his servant Moses, Moses commanded Joshua. That is what Joshua did, leaving nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua and the Israelites obeyed the Lord. I want you to see a couple things in connection with the obedience of the Israelites. The first thing that the Lord says to Joshua and the Israelites is you do not have to be afraid because I have handed them over to you. The victory is certain. The moment God makes a promise to Israel that the battle has been won, it is as good as over. Once God says you're going to be victorious, the victory is certain. Now Joshua 
and the Israelites had to go and fight the battle. But they were not fighting the battle as if the outcome was uncertain. They were fighting the battle on the basis of God's promise that victory was already given to Israel. So Israel is fighting a battle from victory, not for victory. That distinction from victory is critical if we are to understand what it means to obey the Lord. Obedience to the Lord is never actions that we carry out for victory. Obedience to the Lord is always actions we carry out from victory. Israel obeyed the Lord from the promise of victory. And God kept His promise. The second thing I want you to notice about Israel's obedience is that Israel's obedience resulted in the salvation of Gibeon. Remember, this is a smaller story within the larger story of taking the land. And in this smaller story, which begins in Joshua chapter 9, we see Gibeon come under the mercy of God. In chapter 10, we see them protected by Israel through her obedience to the Lord. When the southern kingdoms come to wipe out Gibeon, the northern kingdoms hear about what happened and they're, they're going to come in and take care of what the southern kingdoms could not do. And once again, through Israel's obedience, Gibeon is saved. In the same way, Israel's obedience is the avenue for Gibeon's salvation Israel's obedience is also the means for God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land. Israel's obedience is from victory, not for victory. And Israel's obedience results in the salvation of Gibeon, and Israel's obedience results in the judgment on the inhabitants of the land. All right, let's read the last section. Verse 16. So Joshua took all this land, the hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the foothills, the Arabah, the, the hill country of Israel with its foothills, from Mount Halak, which ascends to Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. No city made peace with Israel except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord commanded Moses. 
At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, Anab, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites, except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. This final section is actually a summary of what has happened. And in this summary, we can see several more of God's promises which are highlighted because he kept his promises. If you remember with me back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Abraham is told, I am going to give you a land. What we're reading here, the allotment to the tribes, that's this land that Abraham was promised. God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants, and now God has kept his promise, and the people are receiving the land he promised them. Now, God had also told his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that the way they would take the land would, would be a longer period of time. And there was a reason. There was design for this length of time it would take to take the land. And that's mentioned in this passage that Joshua and the Israelites were at war with the inhabitants of the land for a long time. And that's by design. God promised there would be a way they would take the land and now they're experiencing the fulfillment of that promise. God had also made a promise back in Genesis chapter 16 that God would judge the inhabitants of the land. He told Abraham, he said, there's going to come a time that I'll take you into a land I promised you. It's going to be about 400 years. Because right now, the people in the land, the Amorites, their sin has not reached fullness yet. So I'm delaying judgment upon their sin because I'm giving them four generations to turn to me. And when they will not turn to me, I will bring judgment. In other words, he's saying when the fullness of their sin reaches a point where mercy is no longer available and judgment is all that's left, then I'm going to send you into the land. I'm going to use you and your obedience to bring judgment upon them. And God keeps his promises. Now I want to remind you about the inhabitants of the land. They all were witnessing the presence of God and the power of God in Israel. They were seeing all the same things that led Rahab to say, I would rather be with you and under your God than in my city and under our God. They were seeing all the same things. And when they were seeing the God of Israel come forth just as he promised, they did not want God. They had seen the witness of God in creation. Every one of them comes from a family 
who was connected to somebody else in their family who generations before knew that God was the one true God. The inhabitants of the land just didn't want God. They were rejecting God. And they had been given every opportunity in the delay of God's judgment to turn to the Lord. And they didn't want Him. And so God, because judgment is coming on the inhabitants of the land according to His will, hardens their hearts so that they will go into battle and will not turn back at any point so that they will be experiencing the judgment of God. Now I want to remind you about Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities that God told Abraham he was going to judge for their wickedness. And Abraham cries out on behalf of those two wicked cities and says, if there's just ten people in those cities who care about you, will you spare the whole city? But there weren't ten. But there was one. His name was Lot. And what God did is he went in and he got Lot and his wife and his two daughters and he brought them out of Sodom and Gomorrah before judgment fell. If there was anybody in the land that cared about God, God would have gone and got them. He did it with Rahab. He did it with Gibeon. But nobody else cared about God. And God brought judgment. Just like he promised. You notice also Gibeon is mentioned in verse 19. God, when he promised Abraham a land, he also said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and then later in Genesis chapter 2, verse about 18 or so. He told Abraham, he said, your descendant will be a blessing to all the families on the face of the earth. Gibeon is being mentioned here to make sure we don't miss the fact that this is a smaller story inside the bigger story. And that we would recognize that it's through the obedience of Israel that Gibeon is saved. Because God's people were promised that they would be a blessing to all other peoples. There's another promise in here about rest. You notice at the end of the chapter it says that they were experiencing the allotment of the inheritance and the land was at rest from war. The Lord had also promised Israel in Deuteronomy about chapter 12 that, that his people would experience rest. That once they entered into the land, they would have rest and security and provision from him. This is the rest that they were promised they would have. And here they've come into the land and they are experiencing God's rest. They've come a long way. You remember the first time they came to the edge of the promised land? In Numbers chapter 13, they sent out spies and the spies came back. You know what the spies said? Ten of the spies 
got the whole nation of Israel to side with them when they said there are really big people in the land. They're called the Anakim. And the Anakim are so big, they make us feel like grasshoppers. There's no way we can take the land. And they're here at the summary of what God has done, we are told that God has given them the land, even the Anakim. The descendants of Anak have been defeated and they are virtually wiped out. And Israel has come a long way from fear to now rest there have been some hints along the way in the book of Joshua that the obedience of Israel is not going to last remember what happened with Achan there's going to be more hints throughout the rest of the book in fact the book ends when Joshua says to the people you need to get rid of the foreign gods in your camp and you're like wait a minute what's going on here we know the rest of the story we know that the obedience of Israel will not last and so the story of Joshua is actually a smaller story inside a larger story you see the obedience of Israel will not last And so we're left with the conclusion, we need the obedience of another. We need a bigger story. Because Israel's obedience is not the answer. Joshua was written to communicate that Israel's obedience was the answer, but we see evidence that they cannot keep the law. We know that they fail miserably. and We are left with this story inside a greater story, longing for the greater story. And the greater story is built upon the promises of God, that He keeps His promises. And everyone in the face of the earth and all of history will experience that God keeps His promises. And there are two outcomes For the promises of God. You can boil down all the promises of God to two outcomes of experience in God keeping His promises. And they're the same two outcomes that we see here in Joshua chapter 11. Salvation and judgment. Those are the two outcomes that everybody will experience. One of those two outcomes. And I recognize that talking about judgment is not exactly the most favorable topic to talk about week in and week out. No survivors. Everybody's killed. I know that that gets a little bit hard to hear week in and week out. But here's the thing. The Bible makes one thing very clear about sin it's a really big deal it's a really big deal to God and every single one of us have sinned against him and our sin against him is so significant 
that every sin against God is worthy of divine judgment. But on the backdrop of divine judgment, God demonstrates an offer of salvation and deliverance. Our sin is big deal to God and we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But God has made an offer of salvation that is far more amazing than we can fathom. And what we need is a better story. And Jesus Christ is that better story. You see, Jesus Christ obeyed his Father perfectly. Israel obeyed, and through the, the obedience of Israel came both salvation for Gibeon and judgment on the inhabitants of the land. Now think about this. Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly. And through Jesus' obedience came God's wrath on sin. All of God's wrath fell on Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ obeyed and went to the cross and died for our sin. It's the obedience of Christ that's the better story because it's only through the obedience of Christ that all of God's wrath fell on all of our sin. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ that made way for an offer of salvation so that if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they will experience escape from wrath on their sin and eternal rest in salvation forever. It's the obedience of Jesus Christ that makes the opportunity for salvation to be offered to anyone who would believe. And it's obvious in the story of Israel, in the story of Rahab, in the story of Gibeon, that all of salvation comes through faith in God. But Israel wasn't enough. We needed Jesus Christ to come and fulfill perfect obedience so that we might have salvation from judgment. And God is right now delaying judgment. He is delaying judgment so that the offer of salvation might reverberate into the ends of the earth and people might be given an opportunity to turn to Christ. He's delaying judgment, but judgment will come. And a description is given in Revelation chapter 16 and 17, specifically in verse 14 of both of those chapters, where it's described that this great battle of the Lord is happening and this great army fueled by demonic passion comes against God to stop His judgment. But no great army will stop the inevitable judgment of God. And chapter 17 says the Lamb of God overcame because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Judgment is coming and no army will stop Him. But until that day comes, salvation is still being offered. 
Hebrews chapter 4, the Bible says in verse 8 that if Joshua had given the people rest, then the Lord would not later have spoken of another day of rest to come. But the Lord did speak of it. Because the rest that Israel experienced in that short time frame in the promised land was not what God intended for eternal rest to be like. He had a better story in mind. He had a better story in mind. And that's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 11 says, Therefore we should do everything we can to enter that rest. Do you know how we enter that rest? Listen to the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without Sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We are in a battle, but it is not a battle for victory. It is a battle from victory. And the obedience of Jesus Christ to go to the cross to pay the payment on, of all our sin has released us into an obedience to go forth for the sake of the salvation of the people around us. Do you know what the church is now called to do? Not to be a vessel of judgment, but to be a vessel of salvation because Jesus Christ was the vessel of judgment and he provided salvation through his death on the cross so that now we can go forth and simply obey the Lord by telling the world that there is a salvation to be found in Jesus Christ and no other. Is that not amazing? That is our life. That is the adventure before us. That is how we live, giving everything we are, trusting in all that Christ has done, and living our lives from victory for the salvation of people around us. It's awesome. And I was reminded of that this weekend in the most amazing of ways. Middle of the week, we were out having dinner with another couple in our church, and we were talking about some of their experiences and, and some of our experiences, and then the subject of bees comes up. Well, I see an opportunity, and so I began to wax on about bees, no pun intended. <laughs> and Lindley's eyes just glaze over. She's heard this a million times. But I'm just excited about talking about bees. And it just so happens that this family was uh, connected to that app next door. Familiar with that little app? It kind of gives you a clue on what's happening in the neighborhoods around you. Well, it just so happened that somebody on next door had communicated they had bees in their backyard. And they didn't want them back there and needed some help. 
And so this couple communicated to me that there was a couple on next door that needed help with bees. And so I said, I'd be happy to help. And so she went home and communicated to that couple that somebody that she knew, her pastor, was into bees. And he'd be happy to come and help. And so then I reached out. She reached out to me and said, they would love for you to call them. So I called them. I touched base with them. And they said, yeah, come and help us with the bees. And so I went over there with my daughter, Malin. She happened to be in town. I said, hey, come with me and check this out. She goes, will I get stung? I said, I hope not, but I can't make any guarantees. And so we went over there together, and sure enough, she had some bees who had moved into an owl house in her backyard. And I go out there, and I'm kind of scoping out the situation. I set up my ladder and getting everything in, 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 in order to be able to get the bees. And, and then while I'm waiting, we're there a little bit before dark, and so I'm waiting for dark to come. And while we're waiting for dark to come, Malin and I realize that God sent the bees to her backyard. That God wanted Malin and I to be in her backyard. Because God wanted to remind us and remind her that God loves And standing in that backyard, tears running down our faces, we joined hands and we cried out to the Lord and we had one of the most unbelievable spiritual experiences I could ever have imagined. And this was a family who needed to hear, God loves you. I was just blown away. I thought... Oh, that God would have placed us in Williamson County to live our lives and just help people see that God loves them. God is delaying judgment so that every one of us find ourselves in a story within a story of helping one person after another, right where we live, right when we live, to find God and follow Him. This week, the story of your life will unfold. Will you see Jesus Christ as the greater story through which the story of your life gives opportunity for other people to find Jesus? There is no greater adventure. There is a rest. And we should make every effort to enter that rest through faith in Jesus Christ. And we should do everything we can to help others do the same. Amen.